You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, hey, good morning, uh, Northway Church family. Uh, my name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here. It's a gift to be with you. Happy Fourth of July. We are still in our summer series called Unfaithful. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6, talking a little bit about Gideon, like Brett said. So Judges chapter 6, go ahead and turn there. Like I said, we've been, we're in week four in this series in the book of Judges called Unfaithful. We've talked about this idea when you think judges don't think like courtroom, think leaders that God has raised up to deliver his people. We've said it's a series of the book of Judges, not just in it. There are, there are actually 12 judges, but we're going to hit about five or six this summer. And then we've said, man, with the unfaithful theme, these judges are flawed and they are unfaithful. I mean, at times it gets dark, like so much so that we've had to put a parent advisory label on this series and just say, hey, there's gonna be some things that are said that are in the text that are true to the brokenness of real life that are kind of shocking. And so when you hear that, you almost think like, why in the world are we studying this book? Like, why are we in this book? And we've said a couple things. We said that even though there's a couple millennia that, that separates us from when the book of Judges was written, it was written after the death of Joshua, before the monarchy in Israel. When you think of people like David and Solomon, it was in that in-between time when God had called his people to, to faithfully push out the idolatry of the land, but instead they had looked at what God had said and they had disobeyed they had compromised. They wanted like God and the world and one big holy hug. Like, we'll, we'll honor you these, these days, God, or these times, but we're almost gonna have this little side thing going on in my life. And there was compromise. And at the same time, they didn't pass the faith on to the next generation. So we said, man, there's lots practically for us to learn. And then just last, this has been so helpful, whether it was Shea week one or Burton week two or Brady week three, each week we've tried to ground it in the gospel. We've said like the hope in the scriptures of character studies is not just uh, be like Deborah or be like Ehud or be like Gideon. No, that, that wouldn't get us very far. Like the hope is to point to a greater judge and a greater King Jesus. So that's where we've been. Uh, Judges chapter six, a little review there. Hope you are there. Let me tell you what I wanna do as we get into the story of Gideon. I'm gonna read six, one through 10. I just want you to feel the cycle uh, that the Israelites have been in. There's this, this cul-de-sac of crazy. They just keep going around and around and around. I want you to feel the weight of that. And then we're going to talk about what does it look like to get out of the cycle? What does it look like to live like, like our God really is king? And so six, and let's start in verse one. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amicalites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as the Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to help 
to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and I brought you out of the house of bondage and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Just pray with me. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this series. We just thank you for what you have in store for us even today. We just come expectant because your word under your spirit really is always enough for your people. And I just, I just know you wanna change us. You don't want us just to take these truths into our head. You wanna drive them to our heart. You want them to be central to us. So I just pray that, God. Like melt our icy hearts where, where we need that. Like help us remember you and turn to you and be a people that rest and rejoice in you. We, we love you and pray this in your name, amen. Well, in his children's stories, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis makes a poetic point that life in this world really is like a place at times that is always winter, but never Christmas. And this is before Aslan shows up. And so it's this picture of when Aslan's not king, this Christ figure, when, when God is not king, it's always winter and never Christmas. The Narnians are stuck in this season and, and, they, and they can't get out. The cold, harsh winter without ever experiencing the joy and freedom of Christmas. They're either like hiding and scared from the wicked queen of Narnia or they are enslaved and in bondage to this wicked queen. One or the other is where we find most of the characters in the book. Relationships aren't as they were meant to be. Where there should be trust, there's deceit. Where there should be freedom, there's bondage and oppression. And where there should be joy and gladness, instead there is fear, sorrow, and hiding. And of course, if you've read the books or seen the movie or heard about it, particularly the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, all of this changes, of course, when King Aslan shows up. But the always winter, never Christmas reality becomes a great picture for what Narnia looks like when King Aslan isn't there, but also what the Israelites experience when God isn't seen as king. And we've said that like the theme of the book of Judges, Judges 17, verse six, and there in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they're looking for peace and happiness and whatever they can get and whatever they want outside and apart from their true king. It was the same C.S. Lewis who wrote those children's books who said this famously, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because there is no such thing. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because there is no such thing. And so in these verses that we just read, like we just feel the weight of the cycle. We're gonna throw the cycle up on the screen here in a second, but it says the people, first the people rebel and they do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Usually that was characterized by them forgetting God and chasing idols. And then God in his mercy would say, just like Romans 1, okay, if that's what you want, I'm gonna give it to you. And God would hand the people over to the very idols that they were so desperate for. And he hands them over and it ends up being times of oppression. This is always true with idolatry, isn't it? When we worship something besides God, idolatry always over promises and under delivers. Um, 
False worship always says, this is gonna be amazing, come to freedom, and it always leads to bondage. One pastor has said it this way, that essentially idols are slave traders masked as abolitionists. It promises freedom, but it's gonna actually entrap you, enslave you, and be a snare to you. And that's what happens. And then in the cycle, the people will cry out. And I actually like uh, that versus like repentance, because at times you're like, I don't know if they're really turning to God, but they're crying out for sure. They, their circumstances are difficult, and they cry out to God, and God in his mercy raises up a judge and brings deliverance. And then the cycle has just been repeating week after week after week. And I don't know about you, but like week one, I was already done. You know, I'm like, I, it's like watching a car wreck. Like I, I can't stop watching, but I want, you know, like, like I wanna look rubberneck, but I shouldn't look. And I, I was already done week one, but here we are week four. And there's something in me and something in you that's feeling like, how in the world does the cycle break? How in the world do we live? Not like, not under false kings, but how do we live like God truly is king. Here's what we're going to see in the story of Gideon. We're just going to see three simple things of ways that we live into the rowdy like God really is king, or three simple ways that, that the cycle can be broken. We see it in the story. We're going to camp out in six and just refer to later chapters where Gideon is. But we're going to see three things. One, the call to remember. Secondly, the call to repent. And then finally, just the call to rest. So first, the call to remember. Look with me at verse 11. Uh, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abrazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And so, and so right away, we should feel the grace and the mercy of a God who continually decides to meet with his people, a God who longs for revival and renew in his people's hearts, a God who longs to meet with his people. Uh, we've just gone through the whole cycle. And usually we said in the cycle that after the Israelites cry out, what does God do? He sends a deliverer. But the cycle kind of changes in verses eight through 10. And instead of a deliverer, he sends a prophet. And essentially the prophet does a little review with them and says, God has done this and God has done this and God has been this to you, but you worship false gods and you disobeyed. And so at that moment, it doesn't seem like they're really turning to God. And there's something in us that's like, okay, I think this is gonna go bad for them. But instead, God continues his mercy and grace by sending his word to an appointed leader who's gonna rescue them. So we just sense and feel the grace of God. We, we sense the grace of God that God continues to show up to weak, doubting, and unfaithful people and reassures them of his presence, that I am still with you. That's amazing. We see that in the verses we just read because Gideon is hiding in a wine press, beating out wheat. We talked about how the Midianites, um, their oppression was so severe that the Israelites are hiding in caves and, and they're afraid. And Gideon embodies this. Usually if they were gonna thresh wheat, they would have taken it outside and they would have um, beat the wheat together and thrown it up in the air in such a way where the wheat that they wanted to keep would have heavier, would have fallen to the ground, but the tares would have flown off in the air. And there was such a fear that if we do this, our enemies are gonna see it and they're gonna come take this food as well. So any food that we can hold on to, let's do this like in places where we normally wouldn't. So here is Gideon in a desperate place in the bottom of a wine press, embodying the very hiding that the people at this time had felt. And Gideon is desperate, which I think is encouraging today. Like if you've come in today and there's, there's any sense of desperation, there's any sense of being brought low, like the text said earlier, which essentially means that, that they, were, they were dried up, they were in a weak and feeble condition. If there's anything in you that feels in a desperate position, that's the most amazing place, like the perfect position for the God of grace and mercy and compassion to meet with you and say what he has to say for, to you. And here's what he says to Gideon. 
and it feels counterintuitive. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon doesn't embody that might. He doesn't look like that. But the word to him is God is with you. Verse 13, look at Gideon's response. And Gideon said to him, please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, love is honesty, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers accounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and he's given us into the hand of Midian. The angel in grace shows up to Gideon. He says, God's with you. And Gideon says, if he's really with me, then why is all this happening around me? Doesn't feel like God's with me. Doesn't look circumstantially like God is with me. And look at the response of the Lord. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel. We're like, what, what might? Like the might of doubting, the might of, of hiding, the might of fear, like which might is he talking about? Well, we talked in Judges 2 that every time that God would raise up a judge, he would empower the judge with his spirit. The might was the fact that God is with you. This is the might. And then look where Gideon goes next. God continually continues to meet with people in his grace that are weak and doubting and unfaithful. What Gideon says next is not doubts, but now insecurity. He goes inward. He said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. In other words, like you've got the wrong person. I'm unable to do this. Like I've got a lot of inability and I can't. And then look at the grace again. And the Lord said to him, not a lecture, just a reassurance of his presence, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. It's just beautiful that God in his grace continues to meet, continues to meet with people just like you and me that are without faith at times, lacking faith, that are doubting, that are weak, that don't think that we have what it takes. But this, this isn't just a Gideon story. This is a all of scripture story, which is, which is so beautiful. Um, there's a commentary called Judges for You. If, if you're trying to get more into the book of Judges that we're doing, this has been really helpful for me and uh, some of our other pastors in the study. And, and, and the commentary says this, God is continually offering the grace of his presence to people who don't seek it, desire it, or appreciate it. God is continually offering the grace of his presence to people who don't seek it, desire it, or appreciate it. But he's, he's always done this, hasn't he? This is the life of Joseph. Joseph is for uh, forsaken by his brothers. He's falsely accused and put in prison. He is forgotten. And the refrain over Joseph's life is God is with you. This is Moses, really similar scene to Gideon. God shows up to Moses and is like, I've seen my people's cries and I'm gonna deliver them. And Moses, I'm gonna do it through you. And Moses is like, you got the wrong guy. I stutter, Pharaoh doesn't listen to me. I did that murder thing back in the day. You know, like I'm the wrong guy. And God says, I will be with you. God, uh, the, the psalm we read at the beginning, through David, Psalm 23, one of the most, most famous psalms, whether you grew up in church or not, David says this, though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not fear. Why? Because God, you are with me. This is Isaiah 41. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. This is the birth of Christ in the, the midst of the crowds of shepherds whose shepherds were some of the lowest of the low in that day. Unexpected mercy and grace of God. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us shows up among those shepherds. This is Hebrews 13. How can we be content? Why? Because God will never leave us or forsake us. We could go on and on and on, but it is the presence of God 
remembering the presence of God that becomes the confidence of the people of God to do what God has asked them to do. Uh, so one of the things that my wife and I have these constant kind of interactions with our, with our kids, and if you're a parent, maybe there's a, there's a similar one. Uh, and so at times we'll, we'll ask them to do something and their response to us will be, I can't. And it won't be something like, it's not like something they actually can't do. You know, it's like clean up your room and it's, I can't. Or, you know, can, can you help us take the trash out? I can't. And so we come back to this reality of like, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. You know, like it's not that you can't do that, it's that you, you won't do that. And what, what's been amazing about the book of Judges is the book of Judges has been showing us that, that disobedience really isn't about inability, it's about amnesia. Like the, the disobedience isn't about our inability to do something, it's the fact that we are prone, we are prone, just like the Israelites, to be those that forget the Lord. And what God's trying to show us through this text is that his presence, it's got to be central. Like it's got to be the most important thing in any room that we go into. As we do that, and as Gideon does it, it leads him to worship. And as that happens, it begins to overshadow every other excuse and every other insecurity. So it's not our, our past that becomes the big thing. It's his presence over our past that gives confidence. It's not our physique or platform or position or paycheck anymore. It's it's his presence that's the confidence for his people to keep moving forward. And God comes to Gideon and calls him to remember four times, we looked at three of them over and over again, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. So the first thing that God calls his people to do to, to, to break the cycle, to live like he's king is to be a people of remembrance, that remember the grace and mercy of his presence, that he still comes even to people that are doubting, and they're unfaithful at times, and they're scared and fearful. He keeps coming and reassuring his presence to the people of God. And he does the same for us, but not just the reassurance of his presence. Uh, the second thing we see, not just this call to remember, but also this call just to repent, this call to, to turn from what we used to do. I want us to, to skip a little bit here. Um, Gideon ends up encountering God, the angel of the Lord, we don't have time to get there. We can talk about that later if you wanna talk more about that. Um, God, uh, he worships God, and then God has some instructions, some marching orders for Gideon. He calls him to obedience. We're just gonna call this a call to repent, not just a call to remember, but to repent. Look with me at verse 25. In verse 25, it says this, that night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asher that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family, and the men of the town, he did it by night. Which I think that should be like a little bit encouraging to us. It's not like, hey, just remember his presence and all, and all the fears go away. So not just remember his presence and then our hearts are melted, that he is central again. But Gideon's still battling this fear, but Gideon actually obeys in the face of it, which is really beautiful. And it shouldn't be surprising to us. I and mean, it feels striking, but it shouldn't be surprising that, that Gideon's dad has built like a really big idol, idol to another God. But at the same time, we learn in chapter two that he apparently has been telling his children about the wonders God 
God performed from the Red Sea. Gideon's like, wait, wait, didn't our fathers tell us about God's wonders? But yet this is the same father who's built a really big idol. We said that the book is immersed and compromised. People that proclaim one thing one day and then do something somewhere else. People that have God right here and then the world right here and it's in one big holy hug. And God is gonna address that directly through Gideon. He's gonna say, I want you to go and tear the idols down. And this was costly. Like the scriptures don't account for some idea of the fact of leaving things that we've worshiped other than Jesus and going back to him is not a costly process. He has to take two bulls and 11 people counting himself. And they're gonna tear these things down during the night. And so it's not, it's not uh, shocking that this would be one uh, compromise and invested in his family at the same time, a real costly process. But I think one of the things the Lord is calling us to through this text is just this call to repent. We see him address Gideon, say, tear down the idols. And the thing that we see all throughout the scriptures and in the book of Judges is that God really is looking for whole life obedience. Shay said this in week one, that partial obedience is no obedience at all. Deuteronomy 6 talks about this call to love God with all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our soul. And so God, God wants all of us. Like he, he wants all of our worship. He knows where false worship will lead. And so there's a call to repent. I just wanna to talk to you briefly in line of that, just what, what does an anatomy of true repentance look like? Like what, what does an anatomy of true repentance look like? I think there's, there's three things an anatomy of true repentance looks like. And here's the first, we actually see this one in the text. Repentance is this idea of turning from our sin and turning towards God. God tells him to tear down the false worship and then build another uh, sacrifice in, in my honor, worship me. Tear down the false idols and instead worship me. The word repentance literally means just to, to turn. And so it's this idea of like a 180. Man, I'll never forget this was about eight years ago, my first day on staff when this church was the Village Dallas, Dallas Northway. Our campus pastor at the time was a man named Steve Harden. And we had, some of you remember this, we had a nursing room uh, that was in the midst of our sanctuary that had a screen where you could watch the sermons. And I'm, you know, it's first day, I'm like eager. I gotta do things right. I gotta do things fast. And Steve's like, hey, go in that room and make sure the screen's on. So I'm like, yes, sir. And I go, I go like blast, blasting through that room. Thankfully didn't see anything I should have seen, but I, like, I, I realized really quick, like this is a nursing room. I don't belong here, you know? There's baby bottle things and flowery things. And all I knew is I saw that and then I 180'd and turned the opposite direction. Like, sorry, Steve, I'm not obeying that command, but I, I've got to turn and get out of here. You felt that before. If you've walked into a place that you shouldn't have been and, and all of a sudden there's this 180 of turn from and turn to, and this is the first call of repentance is to turn from the false worship, to turn from the little, little idol um, and to turn towards the Lord. Shea said this in our Jonah series on repentance, but John Piper has said, God never calls you to turn from a greater thing to a lesser thing. I love that. He never calls you to turn from a greater to a lesser. That's what sin does. God calls you to turn from a lesser thing, sin, which deceives to a greater thing, God himself, the joy that is in his presence. But true repentance doesn't just turn from what's false and turn towards what's greater and true. True repentance also is, is grieved over the sin itself and how it affects God. I don't know if this was going on for Gideon and his family. Does, does it seem like it in light of the text? But we know that. Mere remorse, here's what mere remorse hates. Mere remorse over our sin that won't lead to true change hates the circumstances that we're in. It hates, begin, it begins to like turn on yourself and hate yourself for what you did. But true repentance actually begins to, to be frustrated and grieve over the sin itself and how it's influenced God, how it's affected God. 
We see this in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 from David. That In Psalm 51, he says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. In Psalm 32, he says, forgive the iniquity of my sin. In other words, the evil of my sin. He doesn't, David doesn't beat himself up. He doesn't just, he's not just frustrated the circumstances that can be okay, but it leads him to a greater remorse and grief over the sin itself and how it's affected him and others, but also how it's affected and dishonored a holy God. And so true repentance is a turn from our sin and a turn towards God. True repentance is grieved over the sin itself and how it affects God. But lastly, true repentance leads to change. Like it leads to actual change. There's more that can be said here, but it's a trajectory of growth and change. It's actually obeying God and doing what God has called us to do. True repentance leads to change. And I've just been thinking that, man, this Judges series, it's just been so good for me. Like, I think I've just been really convicted by the idea that the people seem to profess things and believe things in their head, but it's not true in their hearts. They see, it says they, they forgot God, but we know it doesn't mean they didn't know about him. It's not like they're like, who's God? You know, it's that God had it become central to their hearts. And it's been, it's been so convicting me. I've just been praying like, God, would you, would you do that? Like, where in my heart are there things that are just head knowledge that need, I need to be changed? Where do you wanna transform me? Not just with information, but where do you wanna actually transform and change me? And I think one of the ways that we get kind of a nod to that, to like, what are the idols that are in our hearts is we look around the culture and see like, what are places where that's in culture? And there's a couple things that have come to my mind when I think about Dallas that I think maybe, I'm not, I'm not calling you out, calling me out more, but maybe, maybe it's in your heart too. And I think one, we see them in the text, one's autonomy. I think another's glory. I think the first is autonomy. I think when we look around at times, like there is this idea of, yeah, God might be king, that might be what we say, but I'm gonna live like I'm the king. A long time ago, the New York Times had an article called The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. But, but the truth is, like, they could write a new article, just, they probably have, called, like, The, the Happy Life is, is the, the Me Life. Like, there's something in us that says, this is my life, and it's my dreams, and it's my body and my choices, and, and, and that's my truth, you know? Like, like it's, it's me. And God is so merciful. He's so merciful to address that because every time in the scriptures where there's idolatry, do you know it's connected right to idolatry in the scriptures? Oppression of other people. Like we end up having to hurt other people and take advantage of them so that we can keep on to our idols. And God is so merciful that he doesn't, he doesn't, he, he hates, he despises the oppression and taking advantage of other people. And so he's gonna come right after our idols so that they might be torn down. But one is this idea of autonomy. Like the minute you begin to tell me to do something, like I don't wanna do it anymore. Like if it was my idea, it's okay. But you know, like tell me to do it and I don't wanna do it. There, there's this little children's book that we love to read with our kids. Um, it's one by Sally, Sally Lloyd-Jones, not the Jesus Dorver Bible one, another one. And their favorite story is this fish that's like deciding whether it should get out of water and ride a bicycle, you know? And they think it's crazy, you know, like we're always like dying laughing, you know, should the fish get out of water and ride a bicycle? No, probably not, you know, like that's gonna go bad for him. And we laugh, but then um, afterwards, it's like so convicting because there's something in me that looks at the design of God, that looks at the way God's made me to flourish and what it looks like, and then says, I want my own way. And it's like just as silly as the fish jumping out from the water onto the bicycle. The scriptures instead are gonna call us to turn from autonomy and turn towards true, the true lordship of our king where we flourish. That's why 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. 
You're bought with a price. This is why 1 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus died and rose so that you wouldn't live for yourself anymore. There's a, there's a, there's a greater way. There's, there's, a, there's a truer way to live. And it's not just remembering his presence. It starts there. Remembering may it be central, but then it moves to, to repentance, that we would actually repent and turn from our idols and turn towards the Lord. Talked about glory as well. We're gonna see that one here in just a second. So remember, repent, and then just finally rest. Just to talk about this one, I just wanna summarize some of the story of the rest of Gideon. It won't be shocking that if Gideon takes two bulls and 11 people and does it at night and turns on the idols, it's not gonna, it's not gonna go really great for some of the people the next morning. The people of the city wake up and they are furious and they're trying to ask questions and who in the world tore the idols of our city down. And through a bunch of Q and A, they find out it was Gideon and they come to Gideon's dad and they say, we want your son dead. And Gideon's dad in such wisdom says, hey, if Baal's such a great God, let him contend for himself, let him fight. And if he's such a great God, he'll take out Gideon himself. And as you can imagine, um, Gideon ends up being just fine. And he gets a nickname after that, and it's Drubbable, basically Baal contender or Baal fighter, which is just a pretty cool nickname. You know, like I would trade Woody for that one anytime, you know, but I like bail contender. And then, here's what's crazy. We've got the story of the 300, which if you didn't grow up in church world, just the, the brief, or if you need a reminder like me, because I'm not in Judges all the time, like the, the brief story is that finally Gideon has addressed the idols in his own house. And then God begins to call him to address the, the pushing out and the taking over of the land for himself and him alone and pushing out the idolatrous nations. And so he's got 32,000 men, which to me seems pretty smart. We learned that the Midianites were like locusts. There's a lot, they're, they're eating up everything. They're, they're oppressing the peoples. He comes up to God with 32,000 and God says, too many, I wanna deliver. Like, I want you to rest after my deliverance and the fact that I'm the only one that delivers, not you. If you think it's you, there'll be anxiety and fear because you'll have to do it. But I want you to rest and rejoice and boast in the fact that I'm the only one that delivers. So he says, too many people, I want, we gotta shrink it. So I want you to just make a big announcement to all these 32,000 soldiers and say, anyone who's trembling, anyone who's scared, go on home. And this is crazy that 20,000, 20, sorry, 22,000 people, 22,000 people were like, scared? Me, and I'm out, you know? And so all of a sudden the army goes from 32,000 to 10,000. God's like, still, still too many. I want you to rest and rejoice in the fact that I'm the only one that delivers. So he says, have them go down by the stream and have them drink water. And we're gonna do a little test. We're gonna do a little case study here. Anyone that begins to lap the water um, like a dog, we're gonna keep them. I'm like, huh? You know, and then anyone that kneels down, they're going home. So I just feel like if I'm getting with a little control idols, I'm like, lap, you know, like, I'm like, please lap, you know, like trying to get as many people like lap, you know, like we need you to lap. And then, and then here's what happens is after that, this is crazy, only 300 lap. So 9,700 people, we should try this sometime with our church. They, they, they decide to do it a different way and they get sent home too. And Gideon's gotta be trembling. And here comes a merciful and gracious God that loves to reassure his presence. And he says, Gideon, if you're scared, I'm gonna remind you again. I'll remind you again. Go down to the camp and just listen to what they say. 
which just sounds obscure. And so Gideon goes down to the camp and he overhears a conversation where essentially there's a dream and a vision that shows, a man says out loud, this dream and vision can only mean that Gideon, God has given him the victory. And so Gideon leaves like all bow-chested, like I'm gonna win, like this is me, come on, we're gonna win, God's insured it. And Gideon goes back, he, he gives everyone a trumpet and a bowl, a pottery-like bowl with a candle in it. And he says, I'm gonna blow the trumpet at midnight and then you're gonna blow them too. You're gonna break these bowls and we're gonna shout for the Lord and Gideon. This amazing plan, you know, and, and then we're gonna win. And so in the middle of the night, he, uh, he does this and the Midianites are so scared and so caught off guard that they begin to fight one another and then just they begin to flee. And God is trying to show him, you've got to rest that I am the only one who saves. Again, this is all throughout the scriptures. Like he's gotta be our only boast. There's something to me that constantly wants to think it's about me and then, and then I, I want the glory. And if you don't give me the glory, I'm gonna be frustrated. But God's like, I want to be your only boast. Uh, Paul will take it later and say, may my only boast be in the cross for Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah will talk about it and say, don't let the rich person boast in riches. Don't let the wise person boast in wisdom. Don't let the strong person boast in strength, but boast that you know the Lord. He wants to be our only boast. But but here's the sad thing, and and it's not shocking because we've called this series unfaithful. Like Gideon, Gideon quickly turns from the lesson of being reassured of God's presence. He quickly turns from the lesson of the 300. And I gotta be honest, like chapter eight is one of those chapters that is just crazy. Like it, it's one of those chapters where I know I've read the book of Judges. I read it these past couple of weeks and just thought, I feel like I've never seen this before. Like this is, this is a little bit crazy. And what Gideon is gonna do is he is actually, though he has just learned that God alone gets the glory, when some other leaders and kings don't give him the glory, he's gonna get really frustrated, like beat him with thorns and starts trying to take people's life and actually does take people's life. He is so frustrated that you wouldn't, you wouldn't give me the glory that I deserve. And then they're gonna say, hey, Gideon, you should be king. We've got a great idea, you should be king. And here's what Gideon's gonna do. He's gonna say, no, like God alone is king. And he's gonna be like, hey, I'm gonna name my son and my son's name's gonna be my dad's the king, <laughs> you know? You say, no, God, God alone is king. But then Gideon is gonna start acting like he's king. He actually sets up an idol um, that his family becomes ensnared in and he becomes ensnared in and he begins to go back to the very things that things were. He's, he's glory hungry and he thinks, though he says he's not king, he lives a life that acts like he really is the king. And as I've heard that, I mean, there's part of me that's been a little like encouraged because where we're going with the gospel is probably it's been discouraged like, oh my goodness, like how, how do we get out of this cycle? Like how do we, how do we get out of the, of the entrapments here. Like, I remember his presence. I want to, I want to repent. I want to turn. I want to rest and rejoice that he's the only one that, that saves. But how do we get out of it? And I, I think one, one of the ways we get out of it is knowing that like, this is a continual process. Like this cycle, just like the bad cycle, that the better cycle's gotta be put on repeat. Uh, the, the same uh, book I was referencing talks about this idea of like, imagine your heart, imagine your heart like a bucket of ice every morning. I think it's why Luther said the whole of Christian life is repentance. It's why we're constantly called to remember the Lord throughout scriptures, constantly called to rest in his salvation. Imagine your heart like this bucket of ice and every day it's got to be melted. Every day it's gotta be melted. But the, the, the central way that that bucket of ice gets melted is only through the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. 
I just want to read you, if chapter eight wasn't already depressing, I just want to read you how it ends. It's the very converse of everything we've said of remember, repent, and rest. As soon as Gideon died, this is 8, 33 through 34, the people of Israel turned again and they whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Why are, why are stories like this in the scriptures? The scriptures say to show us stories of faith. Hebrews 11 has Gideon in the hall of faith, flawed, faithless at times, but still a man of faith. So these stories do show us faith, but ultimately they, they really are trying to like take us by the chin and just kind of point, point our head to the faithful one. Where Israel's faith failed, where Gideon's faith fails, where our faith fails, Jesus succeeds. Jesus, the true and better judge. In Jesus, we find a better way and a better cycle. Jesus lived his entire life, as R.C. Sproul once said, quorum Deo, like to the face of God. Jesus lived his entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. He fully remembered God's presence. He fully obeyed and he fully rested in his father's deliverance. Jesus rejected the idol of self-glory. Philippians 2 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus rejected the idol of autonomy that characterizes our culture and he chose obedience. He being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's in, in Jesus that we really do find a true and better judge and a true and better way and a true and better cycle. And so I just wanna pray for us. And then as always, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper um, and just let those, continue to ask the Lord, Lord, would you make those truths, things that are in my head, would you make them real to my heart? Father, we love you. Just thank you for the grace of um, your word. And I just thank you that, uh, God, you love us too much to leave us to our own devices. God, we just come to you today and um, we just cry out for mercy. We want to be like your people. And God, we cry out for renewal and for change for our church, Northway Church. We just pray. I just, I just pray, God, that I know so much of the recurrence of the book of Judges is 40 years of peace and then, and then back in the cycle. But I just pray, if you, would you be so gracious uh, to let us experience uh, revival and renewal an awareness of your presence and a constant cycle of turning from what is wrong and turning to what is good and resting your deliverance. Would you be kind to let, let that outlast any of us? Would you be kind to let that outlast to generations and generations and generations for the sake of your glory? Pray that for Seven Mile Road and Waltham too. I pray that over Madison and Jamie and where you're taking them and our whole crew. God, we just, we beg that you make us a people that live life in the midst of your presence. And we pray this for Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, hey, church family, uh, we have the, the privilege of just taking the Lord's Supper and celebrating communion each and every week. And, and the gift of this is this is one of the things the Lord has instituted, instituted really that we could be a people that remember. And so, um, and this is just a grace. A couple of things about this meal. If you're here today and, and you, your faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, the one who was loving enough to lay his life down at the cross, the one strong enough to pick it back up again in the resurrection, if your faith is in Jesus whether you're a part of our church or a different church, this meal is for you. If you be here today and say, hey, that's not true of me, I just want you to know how grateful we are for you to be here. But if you were to participate in this meal, you'd be professing things that you don't believe. And we don't want that to be like a, a bait and switch. I want you to know what this really is. We're professing the, the beauty of Jesus. 
fully God, fully man, who laid his life down at the cross to uh, take our sins and then rose up again from the grave so that we might have the assurance of a relationship with God and forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation and redemption to come. And so um, we just get to do that. We get to remember. I just want to ask you today in light of kind of where our sermon was is uh, before we take the elements, just take a minute and just ask God to inventory your heart. Like where, where are there places where maybe you worship something um, that's not the one true God? Where, where are there places where it's a always winter but never Christmas reality in your heart because you're looking to another king? And just ask the Lord to reveal those things to you and ask him uh, just to help you rest and rejoice in your true king and the true deliverance you have. So let's just do that for a minute and we'll take the supper. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.